Hello and welcome to our BMJ Clinical Podcast. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. I help look after BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. This podcast is about avian influenza. You should learn how to recognise, report and refer affected patients. Avian influenza was first reported in 1878 by an Italian researcher called Peroncito. For the next 120 years, there were sporadic outbreaks. But since 1996, there have been more regular outbreaks, and bigger and more serious ones, in many different countries. This is a worry for patients, doctors, farmers, epidemiologists. It has even threatened foie gras production in France. Some might say that this is a good thing, but that is a debate for another day. The debate for today is on avian influenza in humans, and to help us with this, we have on the line Dr. Mary Margaret Phil. Dr. Phil is a medical epidemiologist in communicable and environmental diseases and emergency preparedness at the Tennessee Department of Health. So, Dr. Phil, it would be great if you could start off by telling us a bit about your experience with avian influenza. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, So my experience with avian influenza has primarily been on the preparedness side. Uh, So in Tennessee, unfortunately, we've had some outbreaks of avian influenza among our um, poultry flocks. Uh, We're a a big poultry producing state. And last year we had several farms um, that reported either highly pathogenic avian influenza or low pathogenic avian influenza. And that leads to a pretty robust public health response in collaboration with our partners at the Department of Agriculture. And so we've done a lot of work trying to determine how best to limit the risk to humans that may be working on these poultry outbreaks. And through that, I've been able to learn a lot about avian influenza, both in the United States and worldwide, um, and hopefully have some pearls that I can share with folks today. Thank you. Uh, And can you tell us what exactly is avian influenza? So avian influenza is a type A influenza virus, and that just means that it's um, one of the four common types of influenza that exist, A, B, C, and D, Um, so it's type A. And this type of virus occurs naturally among wild aquatic birds worldwide and can infect domestic poultry and other bird and animal species. So we primarily think of it as a virus that infects birds, but we know that it can, in rare occasions, infect humans as well. So how would you recognize an affected patient? So this can be a little bit challenging. Um, As I mentioned, there are are several types of influenza viruses. And when humans are infected with any type of influenza virus, the symptoms can be very similar. So for anyone that's had the flu, they know that you can have terrible fevers and chills, muscle or body aches, fatigue, cough, um, shortness of breath or sore throat or runny nose or headaches and a whole variety of other symptoms. So there's nothing in the clinical presentation of avian influenza viruses that, that might distinguish it from say, the normal seasonal flu that's circulating. And so that's where it's really important that healthcare professionals um, have a high index of suspicion if they either live in parts of the world where avian influenza is known to be present or are taking care of patients who have traveled to parts of the world or um, had contact uh, by other means with potentially sick or infected birds or poultry. Okay, that's very helpful. And what tests would you request? So unfortunately, 
um, a lot of our more common tests for influenza, such as PCR tests or rapid flu tests, um, it's it's unclear how um, how how sensitive or specific those may be, um, specifically for avian influenza viruses. And so, while those tests can be done um, in patients whom you may suspect having avian influenza. They may be falsely negative, or there's always the chance that they could be falsely positive. And so really the best way to test for avian influenza, specifically in a patient where you're suspicious that that might be the diagnosis, is to work through your local public health jurisdiction. So all around the world, there are public health laboratories and other labs that are set up to have the capacity to do testing specifically for the strains of influenza um, that live in birds and can infect humans. And so that that relates closely to, to reporting these cases to, to public health authorities, but um, but really what's recommended is, is to work through whatever that public health authority may be in your area um, to help them walk you through the best way to, um, to undergo testing. But regardless of the testing that's done, normally it's conducted in a similar way to the other kinds of flu tests that we do. So things like a nasopharyngeal swab, or a nasal aspirate or wash, um, or a lower respiratory tract specimen, if that's available, um, are all the types of specimens that are typically collected. Okay, thank you. And how can patients prevent themselves from contracting the disease in the first place? Well, fortunately, we know that the primary risk factor for human infection with avian influenza appears to be direct or indirect exposure to infected live or dead poultry or their contaminated environments, such as live bird markets. So for travelers that are going to parts of the world where we know um, avian influenza is more common, they should certainly take precautions to avoid poultry farms or contact with animals in live poultry markets. And for people that work in those industries, if possible, they should wear recommended personal protective equipment and avoid contact with sick or dead animals when, when at all possible. And then, of course, if they develop symptoms, they should notify their healthcare provider of their um, of their bird exposure. And then I think it's also important for people to know that if they do become ill with avian influenza, that um, the risk of them spreading that to someone else is, is thought to be very low. And there have been rare cases of human-to-human transmission of avian influenza infection in humans, but these instances are rare, and there's never been evidence of sustained transmission among human populations. So, um, so certainly people that work in these industries and who travel to the parts of the world where avian influenza is more common can take precautions. But even if they were to get ill, the good news is that at least right now, there doesn't appear to be risk to larger communities or populations um, from this disease. Thank you. And what isolation measures should you take? So the World Health Organization and CDC and other public health authorities have um, have worked hard to put together some recommendations for appropriate infection control measures. And right now, um, those recommendations are fairly aggressive, in part because um, it's not well understood uh, the potential that these viruses may have to spread in healthcare settings. Um, in general, it's uncommon for these viruses to spread from person to person, but that has been documented documented in rare situations in the past. And so out of an abundance of caution, 
um, they recommend fairly robust infection control measures. And so that includes obviously using good hand hygiene and then wearing not only gloves, but also a gown and an N95 respiratory mask, such as would be used for um, airborne precautions for, for pathogens like measles or tuberculosis, and then also eye protection. And they recommend um, additional caution when performing aerosol-generating procedures, such as bronchoscopies or, um, or other things where um, potentially infectious particles could be spread through the air. Oh, okay, I'm guessing for those reasons you need to refer. Is that correct? Yeah, so I think referral to a specialist can certainly be considered, and I, I think some of that will depend on where you live and what options there are for access. Um, you know, testing is certainly challenging, and, and as I already mentioned, oftentimes requires collaboration and um, cooperation with um with, with the appropriate public health authorities. And so for that reason, sometimes um, either referring patients to specialists like infectious disease physicians or, you know, to larger sort of referral centers, referral medical centers that, that handle more, more complex and complicated patients, they may have more experience in facilitating that testing and making sure that the appropriate um, infection control and um, other control mechanisms are put in place to try to limit limit spread. But in general, um, you know, these patients receive fairly standard care. So um, we recommend treatment with antiviral therapy for all patients that have possible infection with avian influenza viruses. And then, of course, supportive care, just like anyone else would receive when they have the flu, aggressive fluids and hydration and um, you know, medications for, for aches and pains and um, whatever other support they may need to um, provide symptom relief and help treat any other complications or conditions they may develop as part of their infection. Thank you. And I'm guessing when all this is going on, you also need to report the disease to the relevant authority. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So depending on the public health structure in your country, a potential case of avian influenza A virus infection in a human should be reported to the appropriate authority as soon as possible. Um, now, some countries have may, may have more specific reporting timelines, um, and they can certainly provide more information to providers about the kind of information that they request and, and what time frame um, they want this information provided within. But it's important for frontline healthcare professionals to know that they are a very important part of our surveillance for avian influenza infections in humans. So the information that they provide to their local public health authority is then fed into larger surveillance systems, such as those operated by the World Health Organization, to track um, where all of these cases are occurring all around the world at any given time. And so that reporting is not just um, for the sake of um, creating another challenge or another administrative task for people, but because it's really important for um, the broader global public health world to know where these cases are occurring and, and to track them um, in, a, in a timely and appropriate way. Okay, th thank you. That's, that's really clear. And back to diagnosis, how can you tell avian influenza from other common differential diagnosis? So, 
as we discussed, I, I think it can be challenging because these patients can present very similarly to people that have the normal circulating seasonal flu or, or a, many other respiratory pathogens. And so this is where it's really important that providers have a high index of suspicion to ask some of those additional questions about high-risk exposures that could really trigger that um, alarm bell in their head, so to speak, that this may be something different than the seasonal flu or another respiratory infection. And so for healthcare providers that practice in a country where avian influenza is known to exist or who are taking care of people who have traveled to those affected countries, we recommend that they obtain a detailed history about exposure to poultry or wild birds, particularly sick or dead animals, and have a high index of suspicion to contact public health and test for avian influenza A virus infection if there do appear to be some high-risk exposures. Okay, thank you. And what are the common pitfalls in the diagnosis and management of avian influenza? I think diagnosis is the most challenging aspect of this disease, just because clinically it doesn't necessarily differentiate itself from other forms of influenza or other common respiratory pathogens. And so it's really incumbent upon people to to ask those hard questions and um, and understand what types of high-risk exposures people may have had. Um, you know, it's in many ways, it's fortunate that we have a very clear risk factor that's identified for, um, for avian influenza, which is exposure to sick or dead poultry or wild birds who, um, who are probably infected with avian influenza. And so unlike the seasonal flu that's you know, currently circulating in North America, um, you're not just going to get this when you go to the grocery store or go to school or go to work. You have to have that high-risk exposure to, to some sort of bird um, or poultry in order to contract the disease. And so, um, you know, while that that can be challenging in terms of asking those additional questions. The good news is that if, if you are able to elicit that risk factor information, it can really help reassure you that this is, is of low likelihood in this patient or urge you to contact public health and pursue additional testing. Okay, excellent. Th- thank you. Last question. If you had one single piece of advice to give to a doctor or other healthcare professional about avian influenza, I wonder what would it be? Well, I think this advice is is not just related to avian influenza, but to many similar emerging or, or more rare pathogens that we deal with around the world. And that's that it's extremely important for healthcare professionals around the world to realize that they're part of a bigger public health system, no matter where they live or what kind of medicine they practice. And if they ever encounter a situation with a patient that makes alarm bells go off in their head, they shouldn't hesitate to call their local public health jurisdiction. And to state that another way, in Tennessee and, and around the world, we see many times that an astute clinician is the first to recognize something unusual and put the wheels in motion for a public health response. And we really can't emphasize enough how critically important frontline healthcare professionals are for us in order to be able to do what we do. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Phil. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful. And we hope that you will be able to put what you've learned into action to better recognise, report and refer affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice or BMJ Learning and look at the content on influenza. 
And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Thank you once again. Thank you.